Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. Um, happy Easter. We're going to spend our time this morning in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrew, Hebrews chapter 7 and direct your attention to verse 23, we'll begin there in a moment. Uh, we'll read the text and then I will offer a word of prayer. And after that, uh, we'll spend time together. I want to remind you, as you're turning there, that we do have a meeting tonight. Uh, talking about the last um, day, really the last week of the life of Christ and, 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 and the day of the resurrection. So we'll be doing that tonight uh, at 7 p.m. So I'll remind you that, watch for that email. With that said, um, let's look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you have given your son as the great high priest for us. We're thankful that out of your great love for us, your great love for him, you covenanted to him a kingdom, one that he has given to us, that you gave an oath to him that he would be priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We're thankful that he came, that he became a man that he became incarnate, that he took him, humanity to himself and lived in our place and died in our place and rose from the dead for us. We're thankful that we get to consider him this morning together as we look at what has been written about him in the book of Hebrews. Father, we ask that as we look at this word together, that your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches, that we would meditate upon Christ, our high priest, our eternal priest, our advocate, our intercessor together, that you would be praised in Jesus name. Amen. Well, Sovereign Grace, as I said, it's Easter Sunday. This is the day where churches and Christians really all around the world are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Generally, they would have started um, some of those festivities earlier in the week. Um, a lot of them would have had a Good Friday service. They would have the Easter Sunday service, etc. And um, while it would have been great to have those things ourselves, we haven't been able to. I do want to remind you, though, in the face of Easter Sunday and Good Friday, that while I'm thankful that we have a time as a culture where people slow down and think about Christ. I am thankful for that. I don't want to make you think I'm not. I do want you to remember that the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel. It, it is the reason that we live every day for him. It's the reason that we gather on the Lord's Day. So it's not just something we think about at Easter. It's Christianity, the person and work of Christ. It's what we... Uh, spend our time really proclaiming and believing and trusting in, and, and he is the one whom we worship. And so the resurrection is not just good news today, it's good news 
every day, and it's the reason we gather every Sunday. Um, now, sadly, we're unable to gather together because we're confronted with a pandemic. Uh, most of the world has been confronted with this pandemic, and it keeps us from gathering together in the way that we normally would. Yet it's my prayer that during this time, and really the prayer of the elders, that during this time, the word of God would be an encouragement to you in, uncertain, in an uncertain time. For while we have little certainty about future events, whether those future events are with regard to our nation, our own day-to-day lives, our jobs, or, or our health, while we have little certainty about those things, we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. We have a rock upon whom we are fastened, to whom we are fastened, which will hold up in all storms. We are members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We have a priest who continues forever. And it's really him, our eternal high priest, who I want to meditate upon this morning who I want us to think upon and consider as we look at what's been said about him in Hebrews 7, 23-25. And as we look at our passage this morning and, and meditate upon Christ, I really have two major points. The first one is that I want to look at the contrast in verses 23 and 24. The contrast that we see in verses 23 and 24, that contrast between the temporary Old Covenant priests and the permanent New Covenant priest, Jesus Christ. So I want to look at that contrast first in verses 23 through 24. And then second, I want to look at the implication. So a contrast and an implication. The implication comes in verse 25. And the implication largely being that we have a priest who can save to the uttermost. One who ever lives to intercede for us. So let's start with the contrast. Let's look at this contrast in verses 23 and 24. And what I want you to see as we look at the text is... This temporary priesthood, this imperfect priesthood, versus this eternal, um, permanent priesthood, a perfect priesthood. So look at verse 23 with me. Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number. And that, that sense that they're many in number is telling us that there's something that's incomplete, that's imperfect. Because you have to have lots of them. And there are many in number. You're going to see what it is. Why is that? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So when an Aaronic priest, in other words, one of the sons of Aaron, held his office under the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Covenant, when he held his office, when you had a Levitical priest in office, he held that office until his death, generally. He was unable to continue in the office. He would usually pass it down oftentimes before that. But... He was unable to continue in his office because of his death. And so you had a series of priests. You had a, a multitude of priests, scores of priests, one after the other dying, all temporary, all imperfect. But look at verse 24. Verse 24. But he, that he being Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now notice that you don't have a multitude of priests anymore. You have one priest. And he holds his priesthood permanently. He does so because he continues forever. 
he's not a priest who dies and vacates his office. He is a priest who continues in his office forever. Those old covenant priests, there were many in number. There were many in number because they died. This new covenant priest, there's one of him. His priesthood is permanent because he continues forever. Now, when you hear that language that he continues forever at the end of verse 24, you likely think that's tipping, if you will, a tip of the hat toward the resurrection. You, you might think, yes, he continues forever because he resurrected, right? He resurrected from the dead. That's what he means, isn't it? But what I want you to understand, and I think it's incredibly important that we grasp, is that, that this is not first or primarily or ultimately about his resurrection from the dead. This is first about his being a priest on the basis of an indestructible life. Look at verse 16 of Hebrews 7. Who, speaking of Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like you would see with the old Levitical Aaronic priests, but, how did he become a priest? But by the power of an indestructible life. See, he is the eternal son of God, to whom God made a covenant oath before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 17. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the son of God, who, to whom the father gave the mission of saving his people. He is priest on the basis of an indestructible Life, because of who he is. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And, and let's look at verse 1. Notice what it says. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. It says they're by the prophets. Really probably better in the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. In his son. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. Second, he's the heir of all things and the one through whom God created all things. Look at the rest of verse 2. Whom the Son, by his, in his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So he's the full and final revelation of all things. He is the heir of all things and the one through whom all things were created. Now look at verse Three, he is the radiance, the outshining, the brightness, if you will, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Uh, his, he's the homoousia with, with the Father. He, he is of the same substance with the Father. He is God. Now look at the rest of it. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So he is the full and final revelation of God. He is the heir of all things. In other words, it's all his. He is the one through whom all things were created. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He is the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. This is the son to whom God says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now look at verse 5. 
For to which of the angels, chapter 1, verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He is the eternally begotten son of God. He is the one to whom the father says, look at verse 8, but of the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's the one to whom the father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He is the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords, he is God himself in the flesh. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. He's the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and who preserves the creation and who outlives the creation. He is the immutable God. And he is the one to whom the Father says in verse 13, look there, and to which of the angels has he ever said? Never said this to the angels. said to his son. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's the one to whom the Father said that, which is from Psalm 110. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. This psalm that is penned by David as he spoke by the Holy Spirit, as he really prophesied by the Holy Spirit. And this is the same psalm in which we hear in verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, this is the indestructible life which is the basis of his priesthood. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And this one, this one, the eternal Son of God, robed himself in frail humanity. He took humanity to himself, and suffered and died for us. Look at Hebrews 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. In other words, he became a man. It's, it's commenting on Psalm 8, which had just been referenced in Hebrews 2. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, he took humanity to himself, and he suffered and died for us. He tasted death for us. He came to bear the curse of death in our place. Listen, we are all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are in Adam, all sinners and condemned. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And the wages of our sin is death, separation from God, the curse, eternal condemnation. And we as sinners will pay that wage unless someone substitutes for us and pays that wage in our place. And so the Son comes and takes humanity to himself to pay that debt for us. Look at verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. 
he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He took humanity to himself to destroy the one who has the power of death through his death. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. He is the one who vanquishes the enemy of sin, Satan, and death. He took humanity to himself so that he might save all of Abraham's offspring. He did so, he did so, took humanity to himself so that he might take the wrath of God upon himself so that we would be forgiven of our sins, absolved, and declared righteous. Look at Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to bear our wrath, to satisfy God's wrath against us, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This Son of God, who took humanity to himself, who kept God's law for us, who was tempted in every way yet without sin, and who suffered and died for our sins, this one rose from the dead on the third day. And at his resurrection, he was vindicated as holy, innocent, and undefiled. He was declared to be, Romans 1, 4, the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The point is not that Paul's making in Romans 1, 4 that he suddenly became the Son of God, which he was not before. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is he was descended um, from David according to the flesh. He walked in humiliation in his ministry from the incarnation through his life, suffering, and death. He walked in that humiliation in our place. And then he is exalted and vindicated to be who he is. So he's declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Yes, he died and rose again. But please catch this. His resurrection is not the basis of his indestructible life, nor is his resurrection the basis of his permanent priesthood. Rather, his indestructible life and his permanent priesthood is the basis of his resurrection. Look at Revelation chapter 1. John seems to wrap this up in language in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 17. John sees a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ. He is afraid. And it says this in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, it is the first and the last, the living one, the one um, who has life in himself, who gave up his life at the cross, 
and was resurrected from the dead and vindicated for us. So think of this eternal priest. Think of this permanent priesthood. Think of how superior he is to those old covenant priests. They could not perfect his church. Only he could perfect his church. The entirety of their ministry was, in fact, an administration of the grace of this high priest, Jesus. It was an administration of Jesus' grace in types and in shadows, in sacrifices and in ceremonies. Uh, But he, Jesus, is the sum and substance of it all. That's the one who came for us. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sat down because his work was completed, so he didn't continue working like those priests had to do in the Old Covenant. His work was finished. The debt was paid in full. He also sat down because he took his throne as the Davidic king, the son of God, the one who was assigned a kingdom by the Father, the one who, when the Father said to him, um, I will, Jesus said, I will tell the decree. The Father said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He has received all that at his throne. He went into heaven. He went into heaven. Those old covenant priests brought people before God's presence in the tabernacle or the temple. But that was just a type of the true tabernacle or temple in heaven. And Jesus has gone there. And he's taken us there with him. He is our forerunner. He's gone ahead of us and gone into heaven on our behalf. And he carries us there with him. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or look down at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. Chapter 6 and verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus is gone, where God dwells, where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Do you hear the contrast? Do you hear the good news? The good news of the promise of the Father to send the Son, both eternally in the covenant of redemption, when the Father promised to send the Son to redeem us, when he did that with an oath, and in history, in the covenant of grace, starting at Genesis 3-5, where it begins, where God declares to man, at our fall, when we fell into sin, and he curses Satan, we hear that blessed good news, 
that he will send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And as he begins to reveal that more and more as we walk through the Old Testament until the Christ comes. And when he is incarnate and born of the virgin and we see him walk through his life as the God-man, keeping the law religiously in every respect, tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, living the righteous life we failed to, showing compassion for and caring for the weak and the helpless, those who are like sheep without a shepherd, healing the lame and the blind and the sick as a foretaste of what's to come in salvation and the resurrection and the new heavens and new earth. And then this Jesus goes to the cross where he bears the full weight of our sins, where he drinks the cup of God's wrath to the dregs, and he takes the curse that belongs to us upon himself. And then he's buried. That humiliation continues. And on the third day, that day that we celebrate as Easter Sunday and the day that we celebrate every Lord's Day, he rose from the dead. He was vindicated before men and angels, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sat down, and he rules and reigns and ever intercedes for us. So you understand this contrast, I hope, a contrast we've been considering really for five weeks now, and that we'll continue to consider. But I want to look at yet another glorious implication of that contrast today. We see the contrast between Jesus as the enduring, permanent, ever-living high priest versus the old covenant priests who were imperfect, who died, who didn't continue in office. But let's look at an implication of that, really the implication we're going to look at today, which is our second point. The implication, the implication is essentially this, that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to the Father through him. And he always lives, he, since he always lives, to intercede for them. Look at verse 25. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Let's look there. Consequently, therefore, because what I've just said about this priest, Jesus, who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever, because that's true, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost forever, completely, fully, finally. He is able to save the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is the mediator. You come to God through him. And if you do, he is able to save you through the, to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the old covenant priests clearly could not save to the uttermost. They could not save completely. They could not save forever those who drew near to God through them. Their ministry was imperfect. It could never perfect Christ's people. Their ministry was temporary and typological. Yes, Christ's grace was being administered there in covenants and promises and types and shadows and ceremonies and sacrifices. It was being administered there, but it was, it was never meant, those things never meant in and of themselves to be a permanent fulfillment. They were always pointing forward to the one who would perfect the church the one who would be the priest forever. And Jesus, 
is the priest forever. Jesus is the mediator through whom we can draw near to God and who is able to save to the uttermost. He's always been the mediator for his people. He was the mediator for his people in the Old Testament through types and shadows. He's the mediator for us as the substance who's come, the one who's come and fulfilled these promises. And he is able to save to the uttermost. See, what he offered as our priest is sufficient. It's enough. It's complete. Nothing needs to be added to it. Look at Hebrews 7.27. He has no need, like those high priests, those old covenant, Aaronic, Levitical high priests, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, because he never did sin, and then for those of the people. Since he did this, Once for all time, really. Once for all time. When he offered up himself. See, there's nothing you can add nor subtract from his work. Your sin does not make his work less complete. And your good works does not make his work more complete. He is powerful to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is, says here, he is able. It doesn't say he is enabled by your faith, nor does it say he is disabled by your sin. He is able. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He is the mediator between God and man. He, and he alone is the mediator. He is our surety. He is our savior. He is our advocate. Listen to how Matthew Poole puts this. For he, Christ, is possessor of a supernatural divine power, which is able to save to perfection, to the full, to all ends, first from sin in its guilt and stain and power, second from its consequences, the curse and wrath and eternal death. What neither ourselves nor others could do for us. He is only able. And he is as willing as he is able to set us in a safe, happy, blessed, and glorious state forever. See, we draw near to the Father in faith and worship through Christ, the only mediator between God and man. We don't go looking for another mediator. Please hear this. It's not even mostly him and a little you. It's all of him. It is all of grace. When you believe in Christ, you don't get some of Christ. You get all of him. You get the whole Christ and all his benefits through faith by the Spirit. But I want to carry this a bit further. Because you might say to me, okay, well, great. Jesus has saved me. And I appreciate that he's forgiven me for my sins. But, but what about when I struggle? What about when I stumble, or when I sin, or when I doubt, or when I think and feel and act wretchedly? What about then? Is it enough then? Please hear this, Sovereign Grace. He is able to save to the uttermost, forever, completely, to the full, to the end, This is no partial salvation, no temporary salvation, 
No incomplete salvation. No, this is the salvation of our eternal priest, our mediator. It is the salvation of the priest who always lives to make intercession for you. Did you catch that? Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. He is at the right hand of the Father right now, as you listen to this sermon, interceding for you. He has never stumbled in his priestly duty, nor has he ever, ever withdrawn even a little bit in his joyous desire to make intercession for his people. Never. Even as he approached his death on the cross, we read in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, at the last night of the life of Christ, as he's coming to his own death, coming to face the wrath of the Father for our sins, as he's coming to that moment, we find him in the high priestly prayer, praying for his apostles and praying for those who would hear the word of God through them and believe. That's us. That's the church, really in all generations. Jesus is praying that the Father will unite them and keep them and bring them to where he is to see his glory, the glory he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. That's what Jesus is doing the last night of his life. He's interceding for us. He is always interceding for us. He is making intercession for us even then. He never, never fails in that. He is always advocating for you at the right hand of the Father. That's what John gets at in 1 John in chapter 2. He knows his people are probably going to struggle with sin in the church. And so he says this, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, I want you to walk in godliness. I want you to walk in righteousness. I want you to walk in the light and not in darkness or sin. But if anyone does sin, and he knows they will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath bearer, the satisfier for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. What more do you need? What more do you need? Hebrews is written really to a church that is tempted to return to old covenant types and shadows. That's the temptation that Hebrews is largely addressing. They want to rest really and approach God in worship through that outwardly glorious worship we see in the old covenant. They want to rest and approach God and worship really in those tangible sacrifices that they can smell and see and taste and touch in those priests with whom they can converse. That's what they want to go back to. And Hebrews is saying, none of that could ever save you. None of those priests could ever perfect you. That was all temporary and typological. You have the substance. The Christ has come. He's the only one who could ever save you. He was saving the Old Testament saints. He's saving you. But he was saving them through types and shadows as he administered his grace that way. He's saving you now through his coming, through his life, death, and resurrection. He has perfected his work. He has fulfilled his promises. You have the fulfillment. You have the eternal priest, the Christ, the Son of God, the mediator, the atoning sacrifice, the advocate, the intercessor. Don't turn back to that other stuff. Don't go back there. 
Now, now that's easy to pick on these Hebrew Christians wanting to go back to temple worship and, and all of that because we don't have a temple to tempt us in that way. But what are the ways that we look to, if you will, other things that we look to rather than trusting Christ and his work for you? I, I know you can demonstrate that your friends in Roman Catholicism do this with their priests and their mass and Mary and their saints and the angels and all that. But what do you look to? What do you look to? Do you trust in the power of your own sincerity? Do you think, ah, God will reward my faith if it's just sincere enough? As somehow believing that what saves you is the virtue of your own faith, rather than the object of your faith. He, Jesus, saves you. Do you look to the merit of your own obedience? Rather than the merit of Christ for you, do you think your own obedience adds something in some necessary way? Do you think your approach to God is mediated by how well you surrender? Or by how deeply you feel the depths of your sin? Like, I can't come and approach him unless I fully surrender. I can't come before him and cast myself in his good graces, unless I really feel the depths of my sin and I'm willing to turn from it. Do you think Christ's work is improved by the quality of your repentance or personal holiness? That's what I'm asking you. None of that stuff completes the work of Christ. Christ's work is complete. None of that makes permanent the work of Christ. Christ's work is permanent. Christ's love and grace toward you far surpass anything you can grasp. Listen to how John Owen says that. There is more love, pity, and compassion in Christ Jesus toward every poor sinner that comes unto God by him than all the saints in heaven are even able to comprehend. I know many of you struggle to believe that it's really all of grace. You're burdened with a sense of guilt and shame that you're never quite able to shake from your back. You're like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress, who, though believing in Christ, you're still, you're still carrying around baggage, being weighed down by your own guilt and shame. John Bunyan understood that. He struggled to believe that Jesus was sufficient for him. He wrote of it in his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding, um, listen to what Bunyan said as he came to understand what I'm praying that the Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see and ears to hear. Listen, listen to what he says. One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, Where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. I saw that it is not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. Now my chains fell off indeed. 
my temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon that all my character, all the good I had, were like the coins a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home in Christ, my Lord. Now Christ was all, Christ was all my righteousness, my sanctification, and redemption. See, Christ is our great, great high priest, our mediator, our atoning sacrifice, who's put an end to all sacrifice, our advocate, our intercessor, and he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he ever lives to intercede for them. Let me end, really, by reading a passage from the Apostle Paul. And I want these words that he says to wash over. You can turn with me, if you want, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 31. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. After Paul has been opening the gospel of Jesus' Christ's work on behalf of his people, he says this, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for our great high priest, the eternal Son of God, who became incarnate to save us from our sins, to reconcile us to you, to anchor us and tether us behind the curtain in heaven, 
that we forever know in him, you are our God, and we are your people. Father, we give thanks that you covenanted with your Son before the foundation of the world to send him as a great high priest. We are thankful that he came and saved us. We're thankful that we see these promises of him coming unfolded beginning at Genesis 3.15 and carrying through scripture until he comes in the incarnation. We're thankful for his work. In Jesus' name, amen.